Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today is our elite irregular panelist and my wingman for the winter of wargaming, Dr. Bruce Garrick. Bruce, welcome to the show. Hello, gamers. You know, I just realized I said good evening, and it is actually morning when we're recording uh, at, the, at this moment. We've just finished a couple sessions of uh, Conflict of Heroes, uh, our game this week, where, which we will be discussing, along with some various Eastern Front matters. Uh, mm-hmm. but we are we are recording a very early show, so if I'm not at the top of my game, it's probably because the coffee has not had enough time to take effect. Hmm. And I think that more than explains what just happened in the scenario Bruce and I just played, in which I managed to single-handedly destroy the German Blitzkrieg as the Germans. Yeah, so that wouldn't uh, the coffee. I don't think would count as an excuse on the Eastern Front. Very well. Uh, so, Bruce, you've been pushing hard for us to talk about Conflict of Heroes for well, basically since it came out. So. Maybe you could explain a little bit why this game resonates with you and why you've been urging us to uh, give it the Three Moves Ahead treatment. Well, so Conflict of Heroes is a game that I think really has a lot to talk about because it's a strategy game that um, when it was translated to the computer, I think it sort of exemplified some really good design decisions and some really bad design decisions or maybe implementation decisions. Conflict of Heroes, for the people who don't know about it, but who are probably Googling it right now if they're uh, able to while listening, is a board game that um, it's by Academy Games. Uh, came out quite a while ago. I mean, it's, it's not a new game, but the computer version actually is not really new either. It's several years old. They've been uh, releasing expansions and things like that for it uh for a while but um it's basically a two-player game of uh tactical combat that uh is sort of squad leader light um it's the same kind of individual uh vehicle plus squad level game with you know hexes terrain um combat that's resolved by comparing numbers uh and two six-sided dice, but it um, it does a few things that are different from Squad Leader. Um, Squad Leader or Advanced Squad Leader, there's only really one kind of family of those games. We can just refer to it as Squad Leader, Um, is, well, was developed at the time where people still kind of, you know, you did your move and I did my move, and the interactivity of the game was limited by that sort of general design philosophy or or um, sort of paradigm limitation where the, you have this idea that I have all these guys and you have all these guys and I move all my guys and then you move all your guys. And in order to make the game interactive, we have to start from that uh, with that limitation and then try to build the interactivity into that limitation. And... You know, in some ways it works, and in some ways it spectacularly doesn't, and you get all sorts of weird play artifacts, um, such as, you know, moving certain guys uh, during your turn just so that they don't get, uh, you use <clears throat> you use various phases to sort of bend the rules to keep uh, units out of line of sight while uh, somebody else is, is uh, using their defensive fire. It, it's just a, it's a very, it, I can't think of even think of a word for it. It's, it's kind of a formulaic way of playing. And the game that we're playing 
sort of started from a from the idea that the two players need to interact all the time. It's a more of a Euro game. I think it's a, a game that was designed during the the, the um, after people had seen how Euro games can keep both players involved all the time. Well, no, so yeah, I never really thought of it that way. And it, oddly enough, I probably should have because, yeah, a lot of the time you're playing uh, squad leader, you're just kind of sitting there nursing your drink while watching the other guy go through his turns and probably uh, look up a lot of rules. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, that never really struck me as... Uh, I guess I just accepted it so much, right, that mm-hmm. I never thought, like, hey, I'm just sort of sitting here not doing anything for extended periods, especially in the larger scenarios where you've got, like, you know, an entire company's worth of guys to, you know, push a few hexes and set up your uh, prep fire and all that stuff. Right. And I didn't see the – I didn't see a Eurogamer – I didn't see Eurogame influence in con- – Conflict of Heroes when I was playing it, um, I guess, you know, just the- thematically I was sort of blinded by that. Your games generally aren't about World War II and mm-hmm. Eastern Front conflict. Uh, but yeah, it has this it, it has this interesting, and I guess for me it was kind of uh, difficult to adjust to. It has this, it's I go, you go, but every turn is divided up, chopped up into the, now I move a squad, you move a squad. I move a squad, you move right. a squad. I shoot, you shoot. That kind right. of thing. That's exactly right, and the the whole game, excuse me, the whole game is a uh, an attempt to have sort of a move counter move feel to it, which it does, I think, um, and it it gets its own that causes it to develop its own sort of limitations, but um, but it's a very different game, and you know if you're playing it as a board game, it's it's very much okay. What am I going to do? And what's he gonna do? And there's a there's a there's a while in squad leader you have the same kind of thing like can can my opponent see that hex? Is he gonna use defensive fire trying to lure a guy into using up all his defensive fire and then moving? It, it, the games share the uh, the sort of peculiarities that come with trying to get somebody to use a, a fixed limited amount of resources before the other player uses his fixed limited amount of resources, right? So you try to get somebody to use up all their shots, and then you move your, the guys that you really want to move. Um, but uh, but I feel like Conflict of Heroes has sort of a different feel to it. You're, you're really, oh, I'm going <clears> to, <throat> what's the one thing I need to do right now? I need to, I need to suppress that squad, and I'm going to do it now with this die roll. And then you know, if that works, then you do the next thing. If it doesn't, then you suffer the consequences. Um, so it's a pretty, it's a simpler game than, uh, than um, Squad Leader. And it's also, um, it's very, very die roll dependent. And uh, it, it has a lot of the problems that um, I think when we were talking about Drive on Moscow with Soren and Troy, uh, the idea that you were sort of being forced to live with these die rolls that just sort of appeared in the computer out of nowhere, and uh, you don't really have the same sort of ownership of the of the random number uh, results that you do if you were playing a game where you rolled the dice. But um, but the reason I wanted to play to talk about Conflict of Heroes was that the game is an example of somebody rethinking a fundamental game mechanic because it was being translated to a medium, meaning the PC, where that the old game mechanic 
didn't really make sense. And I think that that's where we should start, and then we should just sort of talk about the game rules in general. Um, so, Rob, you noticed that, uh, you know, every unit has these action points, right? Right. And you can use the action points for moving and and um, moving and firing and changing position, that kind of thing. What, do you like that kind of that that kind of uh, mechanic? I mean, I did because in part it was it was very simple. Uh, it, it was very easy to track because you're drawing from this common pool because there's no idea of, okay, the unit can move this much, but then mm-hmm. shooting is a totally different action. The idea mm-hmm. that, no, all, all actions a unit can take are mm-hmm. coming from the same pool that represents, I guess, you know, how much, what you can get done in a certain right. amount of time. Right. Makes it actually really easy. There's not a lot of rules you have to learn because everything's drawing from this common pool. So what's what's the cost of this action? Oh, simple. And that's, I can see how that's going to affect mm-hmm. other things. Right. So I liked that. Um, yeah, there's some other things I might want to say uh, later, but I, I kind of want to see where you're going with this thread. So I'll, I'll leave it there. I, I, I mm-hmm. liked the common pool, the action pool, point system. Okay, so the fact that you have an action pool system means that each unit has to have, you have to track action points for each unit, right? Yes. So the the problem you can already imagine if you're playing this in a board game is that if you have 20 units, you have to have 20 different action pools, and you right. have to track those 20 different action pools. So... Conflict of Heroes, in the board game design, thought of doing it in such a way that while every unit has an action pool, you can only activate one unit at a time. So I take a unit, and I start moving it, or you know, doing something to fire, or whatever. I start spending its action points. I can take—that doesn't limit me to using that unit exclusively. I can take an opportunity action with— a different unit. But if I do that, so I can, let's say I'm taking a, let's say I'm taking a, you know, Panzer three and I'm moving it down a road or something like that. And something happens where I think, uh Oh, I need to fire the anti-tank gun. That's, you know, in the forest to my left at some threat that was revealed by the fact that my Panzer three was moving. I can do that. But then my Panzer III basically, it, it ends its activation. And uh, you can really, there's the, you're limited to having one unit activated at a time because you have basically just a, a card that shows your activation points and you track the activation points down on that card. So if you had 20 different units and 20 different cards, you can imagine just it would become, first of all, the layout would be terrible. Uh, right. You could have little counters on top of your uh, on top of your units i guess but then there are other counters on top of the units it would just become become a giant became a giant pain and there's a certain flow to that um to that mechanic that uh, i think for various reasons they decided that you could you basically you track one unit at a time right well of course if you change that to the computer the rationale for that limitation completely disappears right why do you care if you if you uh, have to keep track of action points for any given unit, the the, the game will just do it for you, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, as you saw, I mean, what, what's what's sitting up above all the counters on the on the map board, right? The action points. Oh yeah, yeah. 
right? So there's just there's just a little action point above every counter or next to every counter, however you want to talk about it, saying, here are your action points. Activate any unit you want. And it completely changes the game, I think. Because you no longer have to sort of plan which, you know, the order, because there, there, was, there was a very set kind of uh, hierarchy of units that you would have to then say, okay, I'm, I'm going to activate this guy first. Your whole strategy uh, was in a way tied up in the order in which you activated the units. And the computer, you sort of atomizes it, right? So you just, every unit can take an action whenever it wants. And it makes, I think, for a better game because uh, it, it the whole board is sort of in play all the time, right? Uh, and you really do feel like any move by your opponent can lead to any given counter move by you. You're not fixed uh, on the units that are right now at this time being activated. And uh, and I think it plays great. And I think that, that the, the, the decision that they, they said, you know, well, we're going to make a board game conversion, but you know what? This mechanic doesn't make any sense. So let's just have everybody activate everybody all the time, whenever you want, until you run out of action points, and then obviously you're not activated anymore. Uh, I think it, I think it's a great, uh, a great adaptation to the fact that they were making the game play in a new medium, and uh, and so I just I, I thought that that would be uh, a good takeoff point for you know something because when we talk about strategy games, uh, you know, on quarter uh, on uh, sorry on um, three moves ahead, and we uh, we look at the way that they're designed, I think that it's important to sort of acknowledge the fact that this is not just a straight board game port. It's a board game port in which the game, a fundamental game uh, tenet, was redesigned because it was brought to the PC. And they, they really, you know, Western Civ is the developer, and they really deserve credit for that. Now, the, the sort of the, the corollary to that is that it is a board game port. And so when you bring a board game port to the computer, you have to do certain things to reinforce the, um, the mechanics that a board game uses to make itself feel, um, to, make, to give itself, you know, verisimilitude and, 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 and satisfy the things that gamers want. I think we talked about this um, when we talked about Horse and Pocket. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the way that, the, that Conflict of Heroes looks at games is that, it uh, it uses a very standard board game board game paradigm for adding up a bunch of modifiers and then giving you a handful of modifiers and saying, "Look, I'm firing at this guy from close range. I'm firing him from the flank. I have this, this, and this modifier. I'm giving myself some, you know, uh, bonus points. The target is in this terrain, so it it takes all the things that you sort of want to." get a handle on the things that that are satisfying to gamers they want to think about oh you know these are infantry in the woods uh that are being ambushed by you know these previously unseen guys uh in the uh you know coming up from behind them so they're surprised and they're getting a rear attack things like that uh those are all the things that gamers get satisfaction from and it sort of drives strategy and in the game, you count all those modifiers up, and then you roll some dice. And the fact that the modifiers, the fact that you have to actually implement the modifiers yourself sort of gives you a connection to 
the the theme and reinforces what you're doing this eastern front kind of um uh you know the, the eastern front topic and in conflict of heroes i'm not sure they do a good enough job of taking those things and putting them into the game directly they they have this the problem that i think uh a, another recent uh, strategy game that i think could be much better than it is um space hulk uh sort of forgets the idea that only half of the game is the presentation of the units. The other half of the game on the computer is the presentation of all the things in the rules that exist in the rules for gamers because they want to interact with those things. And the gamers, they, they stop interacting with them because they just turn into these little text blurbs at the bottom of the screen. All I really do is when I click to fire on a unit... I left click the mouse, it gives me a little crosshairs, and then it shoots at a, you know, then I get a little animation and, and it tells me miss or hit, whatever. And I think that you lose so much of the things that gamers want to see in a game because you're immediately focused on the result, and none of the things that went into the result ultimately are reinforced. They just, they kind of scroll off the bottom. And... uh and I think that that's a problem. So the game doesn't seem as rich as it would, uh, and it doesn't feel it doesn't. I don't get the same feel from the game that I get from the board game. Does that make any sense to you? No, it absolutely does. Uh, you know, I'm thinking back to Course and Pocket, and one of the things that does this quite clever is every time you're doing an attack or something, mm-hmm. it it pulls up the 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 combat resolution table, and you kind of see what's contributing to the attack and you you, sort of like all the assets being committed to it are sort of laid out there on the table and the modifiers in play are being highlighted by that interface and so you start to you start to understand that like okay so because there's an artillery fire mission committed to this attack the results just skewed in my favor but because i do not have air like i i do not have any air assets and they do it's it's skewing that that sort of cancels you you get you you get sort of a cool uh, an attachment to everything that goes into an attack, and there's a little bit of drama to it too because you start to re- like it, it makes it significant that you know screw it I'm I'm throwing in all the support I can behind this attack, and here's how I'm going to change the odds in my favor. Mm-hmm. Here, yes, it's absolutely impossible to really track, uh, and I would say maybe like I'm not joking about impossible, like figuring out. What just happened is very difficult because there's so many like spam messages in the right. activity log mm-hmm. that a lot of times if you don't immediately take note of what just happened, it's gone. It literally scrolls off the bottom, and so you don't know why. What seemed like a pretty good you know position uh, for an attack went off with only forty one percent odds of success. You're you're not right. entirely clear what what contributed to that, and so I think that contributed to. One of the things that kept me at arm's length with this game for a while, which is just that it seemed like a game where you push units around and stuff just kind of happens. Mm-hmm. And that is not, like, it's not a good feeling when, when stuff is just kind of happening. And right. yeah, you can read the manual and say, okay, now I understand what all the modifiers are in this game. But mm-hmm. even so, the game, you're right, the game is not reinforcing them because really, it's not, 
it doesn't matter to you. It might matter to the odds, but in terms of what the game is calling attention to and what you are seeing physically, uh, you know, in in the space, it's 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 all kind of you know it's all kind of backgrounded, mm-hmm. and surfacing that stuff is so important. Yeah, and I think that that's the that's the where the game I feel uh, really falls falls down, um, and because of that, I think it's a much weaker solo game than it could be you know if it showed you all the modifiers you know if they did a, if they did a really nice you know you'd have to do a, a nice little um sort of screen design where uh you could have little icons for the for whatever different modifiers that they had and put it all in front of you before you fired and then when you you know when you actually rolled the dice it would show you the dice and then show you the modifiers and show you know what was actually meaningful and you know you you would have you would have missed if you hadn't been doing a flank attack or you know this would have hit except this particular tank has such a high defense value that um you know any other tank would have been destroyed except for this one so you know <clears throat> not only reinforcing what's going into the attack but then or not even just attack but whatever the the thing you're trying to resolve is but what uh once it once it was resolved what were the key uh factors that led to success or failure and i think that that's the thing that's the sort of other thing that the computer can do and 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 the developers keep they're just fixated on the fact that the computer can keep track of things for you and that sort of burying the things that go into the game or, or trying to minimize them, I, I have to feel like they 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 deliberately tried to at least in some way minimize all of these different things. The the modifiers. I don't know if they want think that you know beginning players are going to be overwhelmed by these things or not. But um, but I really think it, it's it's to the detriment of the game. Um, and as a solo game, I think that it doesn't really have a lot. It doesn't really hold a lot of interest for me because um, because I'm playing the AI. So I don't really care that much if I win or lose or it's just there's no I don't have a much of an investment in the game. And all the things that I'm looking for in the game sort of get shoved under the under the shoved under the rug, so to speak. Um, and I kind of have to pick up the rug and look and try to actually go <laughs> actively hunting for them. Right. So in that way, I think the game doesn't it, it, it's such it's so much weaker uh, a solo game than it could be otherwise you made a comment when um when we first started playing the first the first game like a few days ago when we when we uh, sat down together uh you said something like wow this is a lot more uh, something something to this extent this is a lot more engaging um than um than playing against the AI. yeah yeah so tell me a little bit about that well, yeah, it was actually really surprising for me because usually I'm used to feeling like, oh, thank God I have this computer here to liberate me from all the waiting and dullness of the, mm-hmm. the of waiting for the board game to be administered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I looked at this game last year when when you were saying we should maybe take a look at it, and I only played the AI back then. Mm-hmm. And I just, I could not get into it because the AI plays at such a fast pace mm-hmm. that... Well, yeah, it's it's all about pacing, and it's it's a really kind of strange thing. But this game sort of operates at its best when things are happening at a certain rate, and you have a certain mm-hmm. amount of time between actions. Right. And there's a little bit of suspense built into uh, when I'm playing you. There's a ton of suspense between actions where I make a move, I put the unit out there, 
Mm-hmm. And th- then I just have to wait. And like, what's Bruce going to do? Is mm-hmm. he going to open up with that machine gun? Is he going to sprint that squad into the open and try to seize a victory location? Like, I don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so there's this cool, like, while my unit's out there, and I made the move, and I'm waiting for you to make yours, I start mm-hmm. imagining the possibilities of what you're going to do. Right. And start, like, playing playing out these scenarios in my head. And it's actually much more mm-hmm. engaging intellectually, because mm-hmm. there's so many now possibilities in that in that hesitation in the pace. Mm-hmm. Whereas against the AI, you move, and it's just like, oh, yeah, here, we, here I go. Right. And... Everything kind of starts breaking down once the game starts operating at that pace because, one, it, it kind of almost reduces my investment in the game itself because I no longer am really feeling like I ha- like I'm no longer having all that time to think about it, and right. therefore I'm no longer becoming as invested in the possibilities that are happening. It turns into kind of a okay, I'll just click, 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 shoot, move, whatever. Don't mm-hmm. really care. Right. And against you, the game moves at god like a quarter a you know a a tenth the pace mm-hmm. of against the ai and it becomes 50 times better it, it becomes right. it it becomes a board game you're playing on your computer with the same sort of intensity that you do in sort of you know the quiet board gaming room where you're just mm-hmm. sort of like you know trying like hoping against hope your opponent doesn't screw you or does exactly the thing you want him to do right right yeah I agree. I think that, you know, the gameplay is much slower, yet it's much more engaging. Um, I'm thinking, oh, God, you know. And the other thing that, you know, the game needs to get credit for is the fact that, you know, it it takes advantage of of the uh, ability to do hidden movement. And I know that we had several cases in in, in the the three games or so that we played where, uh, you know, one of us moved a unit and the other person was like, holy cow, where did that come from? Uh, and it changed the nature of the scenario. Um, that's something that is basically impossible to do in, um, you know, a board game, a face-to-face board game. You know, uh, both games, the board games have um, the squad leader and, and conflict of heroes have hidden initial placement. Um, but once you know, you have to write that down, and then you verify. You know, when you when the unit is revealed, you verify that's where it was. But I mean, if you start, mo- you can't really move them. You have to in in squad leader. If the if the and you know this, if the uh, hidden initial placement unit moves, uh, it gets covered by concealment counter, and then it kind of moves around under a question mark. But hey, you know that there's a unit there. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, you can bring a whole bunch of units uh, out from you know, the, you can move them half halfway across the map. And as long as nobody can see them, nobody knows. Now, the you do see somebody saying, uh, you know, moving um, some unit, and then you don't see a corresponding unit moving. You think, oh, he's got hidden hidden unit somewhere. But uh, but it's a it's a completely different thing. Um, so I'm sitting there, I'm you know planning what my next move is, trying to move a unit up so that I can give fire support to somebody. And uh, wondering if you have a unit that's going to be able to take this guy out. Is there something I'm not seeing? You know, and, and you're sitting there doing your move. You know, it might take, you know, 30 seconds or a minute. And that 30 seconds or a minute, I'm completely wrapped up in the game. Whereas if the AI was taking 30 seconds or a minute to do its moves, I would, you know, I'd be doing something else also, right? I'd be surfing the web and like, oh, the, the computer moved? Okay, great. What did it do? Um, so it's really, the game is completely different as a two-player game than it is uh, as a solo game. And I think that people who play solo 
unfortunately get the much weaker product. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we both got on to uh, the multiplayer lobby, and it was actually pretty pretty straightforward. Um, yeah. To uh, you know to to do the uh, to do the multiplayer in the game, but there were no other games that I saw running. Wow. No, it really seems like you've got to arrange your opponents wanted. Uh, right. You know, you can either go to the forums and be like, "Hey, I'm, I want to play this scenario," and I'm up for mm-hmm. it, uh, which I see a lot. But yeah, it doesn't seem like the sort of thing. And this is a problem I see in a lot of war games where you have uh, these lobbies. There tends not to be a ton of activity on them right. at, at, at any one moment. I think because of this exact problem. Like, for some reason, you know, in RTS game, you have to sit there and wait for someone else to be there. Mm-hmm. And so there's incentive, though, to just sort of, like, camp the servers and be like, look, I want to play this. Uh, anyone, up, you know, anyone who's got a game, I want to join. Right. With a game like this, the audience is pretty small and... You know, it's 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 turn based anyway, so it's it's going to operate at kind of a you know meditative pace. Mm-hmm. It just it it kind of it, it sort of slots in weirdly, and I think it it becomes sort of a thing where you know you need friends who are into it, right? And that's the that's the place where you know forums and things like that come in, and and but but you it's not really. Um, I mean, this is a game that you sort of have to you know. I actually, to be honest, I didn't even evaluate or investigate whether it has a play-by-email feature, um, but I don't think it does. Not that it wouldn't be easy to do. I guess you could just send a save game file back and forth, but um, no, that'd be that'd be terrible. Yeah, right. I mean, it, but the the point is that it, I think it would be much weaker game even doing that. Yeah, I think you really have to. What I was I was going to say is that I think you you really have to play this game in real time against somebody to really see how good it is. And um, and I really do think that, you know, well, people would say, well, I just want to play the board game against a friend, and that's fine, uh, and it's probably a better experience. Um, but the fact that the activation rules are, I think, improved means that you're really getting a unique, uh, a unique game experience out of the head-to-head network game than you would from the board game, but then you're 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 um, you're losing the things that we've already talked about the the sort of um, the, the 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 tactile um, feel that you're not the, the tactile experience that you're not getting replaced by the graphic design in the game, and I just think that that's you, they could have done such a better job. It's the it's 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 a mistake that I think Space Hulk made as well. You just uh, you have such a rich um, milieu of units and uh, those units come to life by you know through the modifiers and the game mechanic changes that they they have They're, it's all sort of just put in this tiny little box where you say oh you know that guy rolled a seven he's dead mm-hmm. um, it's just a, it's a real uh, I think it's a real a, a real shame I'm not sure why um, developers take this approach Um whether they're trying to emphasize that, hey, you know, yeah, it was a board game, but look, uh, look how cool it is, and and the, and the the things that get um, the things that get implemented are strange to me too, like the uh, the 3D units, which looked bizarre to me, walking on like a flat. I mean, you've got these you've got these little infantrymen in you know 3D figures, and they're standing on a hex board, and the trees that they're in are flat. 
Yeah. And I never understood stuff like that. I mean, if you're gonna, if you're going to do, um, if you're if you're going to try to go for some kind of you know different presentation, um, maybe it's just too difficult to try to do a whole terrain engine, um, and just doing the units is is easy. Um, I just I play it. How do how do you play? It? Do you play it with the the counters on, or do you play it with the three D units? I played it with the three D units because when I went to switch to counters, the game crashed uh, oh, okay. during our first well, game. So I just learned not to touch it. I was like, "Don't touch that button." Yeah. Uh, although it's worked other times, I, the counters look a little better uh, in in a lot of ways, but then they look kind of weird on the three D game board uh, mm-hmm. with the hills and I don't know. It's it, it's 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 an odd looking game. Uh, I'm not sure it finds a. I'm not sure it finds a happy balance between converting a board game and making a like 3D video game. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, it it doesn't really bother me. Now, I actually think that a game like Space Hulk did an okay job, uh, although the the map gets pretty monotonous. Mm-hmm. But I, I thought that was a little more uh, evocative and atmospheric, just because the models were so much better and the lighting was so much better. Here, mm-hmm. it's um, it's it's an odd looking game. Uh, I'll just say that. But it's not. Uh, it's not as. It sounds like faint praise to say it's not as catastrophic as it could be. But uh, I really enjoy the um, the sort of game design pathway that takes individual units, uses a set of dice as a resolution mechanism, and then all of the factors that go into whatever thing you're trying to resolve um, turn into die modifiers. And then you just roll some dice. Um, is Now, as you and I experienced, we had a couple games where, um, you know, you lose a few really crucial die rolls, and the other player's probably going to win. Um, but it's a very, it's a nice, you know, sort of, you could sit down and play a few games of this and, you know, you'd win some die rolls and I'd, that's basically what happened when we played, you know, in the first game, um, I lost, or you, you got a, some really good die rolls when it counted. And the second game, um, we were playing a game with tanks, uh, and, um, I got some pretty good shots and, uh, took out a bunch of your tanks and, uh, that was, that was that. So, uh, um, you know, and we and it it didn't take us that long to play. We had a, a couple of good games uh, in a short period of time, and uh, so I think it, I mean it's it's a it's a it's an excellent game for that, which is unfortunately going to see, you know, it's a very limited appeal market because you've got to sit down uh, and play head to head. You got to play a turn based game head to head. You really have to be invested in what you're playing. Because I really can't recommend the versus AI. I think there's just there's better turn based war games for that. There's there's better real time tactical games for it. Um, I I did I actively do not enjoy playing against the AI, uh, but against a person, it becomes uh, a a really cool uh, you know digital board game. Yeah, um, I, I I agree. It, you know, it put me in mind, though, the, the, the change they made to activation is, is, is a really, really cool idea, a really brilliant idea of 
hey, we have the computer here to, to track all this so we don't have to go to this really artificial, stilted system that made the board game manageable for, for the human brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can do no-brainer stuff like, you know, administer uh, hidden movement, uh, you know, surprise units. Because every, bo- every board game, like, when, when the moment hidden units and fog of war starts getting introduced, mm-hmm. you know you're in for some fussy goddamn rules. Um, and usually it involves some silly stacks of counters that get flipped and it's just, Mm -hmm. it's awful. It's awful. But here I just, I really like that change they made. It's sort of taking a board game and then saying, well, this is actually kind of the idea we were going for all along. And now we can Mm -hmm. kind of realize it, uh, without, because we don't have to limit ourselves to what people can handle. And it made me think back to course and pocket, which, comes at it in a slightly different way of it's it's designed like a board game except nobody would ever play this board game nobody ever could play right. this board game but right. it's very much designed like okay we're going to take all the rules of a board game and we're going to put them into in make them into a computer game mm-hmm. but this one is just enormously complicated and you know involves so many different modifiers and combat resolution tables that it would be unplayable, but because we have this computer here, we can now design a game using these systems and push them to the absolute limit of what's possible. Right. And and, and I think it's important to to emphasize that my comment earlier about, you know, this the the idea of a resolution combat resolution system where you just roll some dice and have a bunch of modifiers to it, um, that's a very different um, that's obviously a very different system than most games use, but I think it's a I think it's a very I think it's a very viable system for taking the sort of parts of history that gamers want to interact with and putting them in the game uh and putting everything under the hood and just giving you sort of a result and having you feel that um that the game took all of these very complex things and put them in a black box and gave you what you you know what the game wants you to believe is a you know quote realistic result end quote those are two very different philosophies, and I think that it's this is a very reasonable uh, approach to this particular philosophy. I think there's nothing wrong with having a game on the computer that still emphasizes sort of an integer-based, uh, you know, simple probability-based way of interacting with variables that are really quite complex, um, because the whole point is just to put you in this situation of of, uh, you know, being on the Eastern Front. And speaking of which, um, I, I want to know, so we had, uh, I had suggested that you read some books, uh, which I think you did, and maybe you can talk about what they were and, and what you thought of them, but I wanted to tie that into this whole idea of, you know, Eastern Front um, small unit tactics, because, uh, you know, Course and Pocket is obviously a... a a game about this gigantic offensive and uh especially that first scenario we played that you know the partisan scenario we played of of uh awakening the conflict of hairs awakening mm-hmm. the bear i mean that was just these few squads running around with some you know rifles and light machine guns and getting in close combat and everything that uh i think that was involved basically described in those books that uh that we had uh, talked about yeah so so the books you recommended were um the Forgotten Soldier by Guy Sierre, and that's kind of an interesting case, right? Because there's 
nobody really knows who this guy was, right? Like, the, like the authorship and veracity of this account is already it's like some, it's somewhat in in question. Somewhat, um, yes, right. But there's also like, but but like details have been verified too. Like, there's a lot of like it's very it's a very authentic. Uh, retelling of this uh, Alsatian soldier's experiences mm-hmm. fighting for the German army. He was a, he was a French-German mm-hmm. uh, descent, and so as an Alsatian, he ended up joining the uh, Germans as a German national, despite being uh, a French. Right. Um, it, so it's it's his account of he, he joins the he joins the uh, German army just as mm-hmm. the uh, forty-two campaign is getting underway, right. and he's actually wrapping up training as things are going south in Stalingrad. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really his his experiences of joining the of joining the combat infantry come uh, really during the you know days of you know forty three through to the end of uh, end of the war right and uh, it's really it's really interesting perspective on it because I'm so used to reading about the Eastern Front from this sort of high level perspective where you're talking about you know huge sweeping movements of, on on maps and usually there's a map on the next page right. to illustrate what's happening mm-hmm. and reading this experience of the soldier on the ground there's this there's this point where he's uh working as a supply trooper and running ammunition and and food up to forward positions along the Don River mm-hmm. and then suddenly after days of holding the Russians at bay and everything seems kind of stable and the front's been really quiet everyone needs to get the hell out of there right now because mm-hmm. we're being encircled uh, but right. nobody knows that's happening uh, so it just turns into this chaotic flight where you really have no idea where you're going or why the Russians keep popping up in places you don't expect them to be and it's mm-hmm. not until later he figures out what figures out what happened right it, it's, it's really it's, it's a really interesting book and really cool to read about it from from that perspective and then the other book was um the retreat by uh, I always forget his name. Michael Jones. Michael Jones. Yeah, yes. uh, which is more a oral history of the German failure to take Moscow and then the Soviet counteroffensive. Yeah, the British. He's a British military historian, uh, and he. Uh, yeah, that that was. I I thought you should read that book because there's just so little that is actually I think um, available in English about the, you know, not Operation Typhoon, but the. Uh, aftermath of operation typhoon and the retreat in 1941-42 and uh, there are some some very interesting descriptions of small unit actions in that book that i think um are uh i think the book is really really fascinating um and the the small unit actions really he paints a great picture of these these individual uh you know battles in these small towns with the Germans retreating and the, you know, the, the Russians are, are pursuing them and they have, you know, there's the one about the, you know, there's a machine gunner and a foxhole that uh, they sort of leave him behind. Um, don't really know what happens to him, but he enables them all to escape. Uh, there's another one about, um, uh, you, you mentioned the one about the two, the two soldiers uh, each throw grenades at each other uh, simultaneously. Um and uh you know these are all all uh you know eyewitness accounts so you know there's some uh you know effects of um you know effects of time on memory but uh i think that this is the kind of thing that you know obviously nobody who plays war games wants to actually be in uh some kind of desperate situation on the eastern front um but the the sort of interest in history and the the um the desire to connect with this in some you know albeit very safe and and you know it's um non-threatening way yeah. 
uh, is uh, I think that I think Conflict of Heroes really fits into that uh, that niche, and that's why these kind of tactical um, tactical war games exist. And I would recommend. I, I don't. I, I assume you enjoyed the books. Um, I would recommend that uh, anyone interested in uh, this topic. Uh, definitely read Forgotten Soldier uh, by Guy Sire, uh, S-A-J-E-R, and uh, Michael Jones' The Retreat. Michael Jones also wrote a book about—he's written a bunch of books, but uh, one about the Siege of Leningrad, which is not the best Siege of Leningrad book uh, I've ever read. There are better ones. But as far as the uh, 1941 retreat, I, I, don't, I haven't found one that really uh, fits that mm. that topic as, as, as well as Michael Jones' book does. It's— it's a difficult thing to research, right? Because like Soviet firsthand accounts have never seem to be all that plentiful in mm-hmm. Western literature, right? And I also wonder how much of that is due to the fact that like it's interesting reading the retreat because you see German officers felt secure in their thoughts and their diaries. They they knew that you know the Reich might be a totalitarian dictatorship, uh, mm-hmm. but if you're a first class citizen of that dictatorship, your thoughts remain private, and so you get really kind of unsparing analysis of what's happening in mm-hmm. Germany and with Hitler and with the war from the highest figures in the German military. You do not find that level of frankness uh, among the Soviets, especially not, and it's not written contemporary, con, uh, contemporaneously right. with the events. Like you're relying on Zhukov and Rokossovsky to sort mm-hmm. of explain what was going through their heads years later when mm-hmm. things are safe to talk about what happened sort of right. sort of but everyone's fighting for the reputation years later or like, mm-hmm. what what did you do during the war right and they're doing it with this eye toward history whereas it you, you know with the germans you get these perspectives of uh you see like you know franz halder you know start off thinking well we got we got this we're, we're doing great this is the best mm-hmm. campaign i've ever been a part of right and then three weeks later he's like oh boy i think we might have trouble here Right. Uh, there's this great there's this great passage um, in the book where he talks about how all of the divisions the Soviets have they just didn't expect to be there and he's like mm-hmm. yes they're they're barely military formations at all they're they're ill trained they don't know what they're doing uh, they're ill equipped but they're there physically right. they're there on the battlefield and we have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't you don't find accounts like that on the Russian side, but you do. There at least there the, there's a lot of cool stuff from uh, Russian junior officers who are you know they're, they're keeping a diary because no one really gives a damn uh, mm-hmm. you know what's running through their head. So right. it, you get some really interesting perspectives there, and I, I do think that you know in, in that in that story about the the german soldier who's rushing this like uh, rush, he's he's rushing this uh, soviet position yeah and... describe that yeah so he's talking about he and his squad are formed up to assault a soviet house uh, mm-hmm. like a large large blockhouse where they know some soviet soldiers are stationed they're going to drive them out because uh, people, you 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 fought like cats and dogs for any kind of shelter on the eastern right. front that winter. Right. Yeah, it's very important in that in that whole time period. Yeah, it's it, it's sort of like the company of heroes thing. You know, you sort of laughed. We sort of laughed at it last year, but the company of heroes thing of well, it, it's about heat. Units need to need to be in warm places. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's you, you read the retreat and you realize well for for a certain winter that was that was very true. It was a matter of life and death. Who who controlled a windbreak? You know, was going to decide right. uh, who survives. So, the the Germans are formed up to drive this advanced Soviet. It's basically two vanguard elements running into each other. Mm-hmm. But the the guy, the German writing the, the writing the story, 
was a veteran of all the previous Wehrmacht campaigns. And mm -hmm. as he sets the stage here, he, he just says that Russia was odd because in all the battles he fought there, he could never remember a single thing about the terrain, the the names of the places. It was just all this indistinct blur. And he had these really sharp recollections of his fighting in France and the Balkans, you mm -hmm. know, where he could sort of, like, he had sharp visions of what had happened. In Russia, he could never really figure out where he was or what exactly happened. Uh, That's a pretty extraordinary uh, claim, I think. It is. It is. But his point is that the country is so vast mm -hmm. uh, and so everything's so distant, right? Mm -hmm. That it's not like fighting in Western Europe where things are very dense, where right. where where everything's very packed in. You know, it's like the, it's a country was so was was so immense that it almost overwhelmed his memory, and he could his memory couldn't fit it. It it just it 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 was this impossibly large thing that to to hold on to any overall conception of it was impossible. Yeah, and. So then he talks, they, they, he and his squad form up, and he rushes forward uh, with a grenade out. And just as he's moving out into the open, the door to this blockhouse opens up, and a Russian soldier that he describes as basically his mirror image. They're both recon troops. Uh, mm -hmm. They're both veterans. And the guy just looks at him with absolute hatred. They both have mm -hmm. their grenades out. They fling their grenades at each other. And then he's, like, time slows down. And... You know, they both think they're dead because they've both thrown grenades right at each other. They, they right. both think this is it. Uh, and so he just remembers everything about the soldier's face uh, and everything about this moment in, in razor-sharp detail. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about how they sort of, like, they have this one weird, weirdly human moment as they realize they probably are in the exact same position they're both they're both exhausted they're both <laughs> they've both been fighting for a long time right. and this and the soviet starts to like lean his head forward and almost like say something and then the dirt and fire sort of fountains up from his feet and he's gone mm -hmm. and it's just this this unforgettable passage but there the two things that struck me is is well it's just a, it's just a great story of of how men in combat you know the, the weird intimacy that develops between uh you know between foes in, in a war like that even if it's mm -hmm. in hindsight and it's kind of a romantic uh notion the the other thing though is is his description of the way nothing could ever stood out in russia they could never that it, yeah the, the way you said it overwhelmed his memory something about eastern front conflict on that on that squad level mm -hmm. and i think conflict of heroes does this very well is that it's a very a lot of the spaces you end up fighting are very tactically uncomfortable um it, it sort of seems like on western front scenarios right like if you're fighting a hedgerow campaign mm -hmm. uh or a french village there's usually like lots of cover lots of things to move from it, war seems to follow a certain pattern of okay your units are safe here you set up you know cover fire you you leapfrog here and there's still risk and chance there but tactically it's this very dense space right in conflict of heroes there's so many places where you really have no choice but to say i'm going to send a lot of guys into the open right now and many of them are going to get shot mm -hmm. and they're going to have no cover but it has to be done because the only other terrain feature is, you know, 400 yards away, you know, right. 
across a field, and I right. just have to do it. And that's a really, it's something this game brings home, and I think it relates to that anecdote, is just there's so many places where what, what's what's the defining feature here? It's a it's a it's a crossroads between two stands of trees, and the rest of the ground is open. It's mm-hmm. all dead ground, and so you just have to accept a certain level of risk and vulnerability in a game like this that is actually very hard to accept if you're used to playing like street fighting campaigns, uh, you know, in Normandy mm-hmm. or uh, late war scenarios in the German heartland. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's the the. Um, I mean, the Soviet human wave tactics occurred because they could, right? I mean, they there was a lot of room to do that, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, while games um, don't really give you any, I mean, there there's clearly not much emotional connection between the playing the game and the actual uh, description that you that you recounted there um, about the, you know, soldiers throwing grenades at each other, um, you do sort of get an idea of how um, sort of cheap the lives were on the Eastern Front because you just pick up these units. They're just constantly, you know, they just come off the board like, oh, that guy's gone. Oh, that guy's gone. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, the, the, the mechanics of a, of a board game uh, sort of reflect the reality and, you know, in a, an extremely, you know, trivialized and imperfect way. Oh, yeah. But, but um, but that's there. So um, it's it's uh, I, I can't think. I mean, combat mission Barbarossa Berlin uh, is probably the only the only competitor there really is for um, for conflict of heroes in this type of you know uh, turn based tactical Eastern Front combat. I mean, it, I can't. I'm trying to think of another game, and I can't think of one. I mean. None of the none of the um, turn based. Yeah, I don't think yeah, there's none of the much. HPS games is really. I mean, I guess squ- I guess squad battles, um, but for some reason, squad battles doesn't uh, doesn't have the same. Doesn't have that's another that's one we should talk about. Tiller squad battles. Um, squad there there are squad battles. I think the original squad battles, the very first one that he did was actually a Vietnam game. Um, but uh, that's yeah, something a we should huge should look series. At. Yeah, yeah. There's oh, there's tons of them, I and mean, then that's been going on for years. But um, yeah, I guess I guess add squad battles and conflict to heroes, and uh, and combat mission. It's amazing that for something that's so historically interesting and makes such a good game, that there would be so few. Uh, I guess people just decide that well, if you're going to do this, you might as well just make it real time. Which I think, I mean, it has its it has its uh, its advantages, but um, they're. There's nothing quite like a really well done uh, turn-based tactical war game, and I think the fact that you immediately experienced the exponential rise in tension when we were playing it uh, on the, you know, as, as a head-to-head game on the computer uh, is is evidence of that. Yeah, I, I think it's it's definitely unfortunate. I I, I feel like I, I wish there were more modern turn-based games as it is right like i feel mm-hmm. there's a reason that we end up talking about the old combat mission series a lot right. uh, we end up going back to games like course and pocket uh in, in part i think because like looking at the tiller stuff like i probably shouldn't judge a book by its cover but it is so it is so clearly for a specialty audience that's willing to put up with a whole lot of odd ui decisions 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it like yeah, looking at the stuff, it it looks like you're playing a Windows 3.1 game uh, right. with odd little like you know tool toolbars, mm-hmm. uh, and it's just that's 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 harder to get into for me. Uh, yeah, I agree and with you. I I kind of wish there were more um, more modern uh turn turn based games but it definitely seems like the tendency is to go uh real time yeah which is you can make great games like that i mean the the close combat series definitely uh was was fantastic i'm not sure mm-hmm. matrix has has done the best work with it uh because i think they've tended to make uh those games a little too big i i think there's a sweet spot for size there and they right. they went beyond it in their own uh in their own editions mhm you know, Troy and I were talking last week about the uh, Octoon Pan. Well, now they're called Graviteam Tactics uh, games, mm-hmm. and uh, you did a show with with us on on the first one, right? Uh, Octoon Panzers, uh, Kharkov, nineteen forty three. Um, I believe so. I can't. I can't remember. I think so. Yeah, and it definitely gets across things about the Eastern Front uh, in a really extraordinary way, mm-hmm. but. The, the problem is it models it with such fidelity that you have these real-time encounters that play out with all the inactivity and waiting and hesitation mm-hmm. of a real action on the Eastern right. Front where, you know, it's, it's anything could be happening across these, you know, miles of terrain you have to watch with too few troops. Mm-hmm. And you just have no idea, um, which is, is kind of cool. There's a weird tension to that, but it doesn't make for a great you know, pace for, for a real-time game. Right. So, yeah, I definitely wish uh, you, you, there were a few more turn-based options. Yeah. And I think that is where we will leave it for now. Uh, we will be back next week with, uh, I think we are going to manage to do Operation, not Operation Flashpoint, mm-hmm. uh, Flashpoint Campaigns. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's so, an interesting game. Yeah, so we'll be back next week with another war game, and uh, then we'll see where we go from there. Uh, but that Excellent. does it for this week. Uh, thank you for listening. And as always, thanks to Michael Hermes for producing this episode and to Bruce for uh, managing to spend his morning uh, talking about war games. Love doing it. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good morning. Good morning. Good day. <laughs>